Good morning. My name is Chris Genders. I'm the youth pastor for the church. This is our second week of a series called Shrinking Jesus. Our lead pastor, Bill White, and his wife are in Israel. And if you're a friend of Vicky's on Facebook, you've been seeing some of the pictures that she's been posting. And uh, just absolutely incredible opportunity they've had to go over there. And um, I was privileged to go over there in 2010. And so I'm seeing a lot of the same things that I saw and, and bringing back a lot of memories from that trip. And just uh, incredible to kind of relive that trip vicariously through, uh, through her and, and Bill and uh, their pictures. So I encourage you uh, um, to connect with Bill and Vicky when they come back. He's going to be preaching again on the 22nd. I think the purpose of that whole Sunday is, is just to share what God has done in him um, and Vicky through their trip to Israel. So I uh, look forward to hearing that. So I'll be here this morning and then next week as well. Last week I ended early and many of you thanked me for that, uh, especially nursery workers. They were very thankful for that. The reality is I was just banking time for today. So um, <clears throat> it wasn't planned, but my sermon's a little bit longer than it was last week. And, um, you know, I heard a long time ago um, a preacher that said, the purpose of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And uh, this morning I'm going to afflict the comfortable. Um, this, this is a tough message. I've had a week to, to really wrestle with this in my own life. We're talking about discontentment. And uh, the challenge for you guys, um, the real work from today comes after I get done today. When you go home and, and you process what I've said and you look at the scripture and you evaluate your own life and your own perspectives and, and how often we struggle with discontentment. And so my challenge to you today is listen, but then do the hard work the rest of this week, okay? Uh, will you commit to that? Amen? All right, got an amen. Awesome. Can we be honest? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to start off right off from the back. Can we be honest that appearances matter? Whether we want to admit it or not, appearances matter. So much of our life when it comes to discontentment is because we're, we're pursuing things to make us look good. And in, in, in our community, in this area, I think it's safe to say um, that many of us struggle with wanting to look the right part, to look good, to be taken seriously, to, to be valued as a human being who's contributing to, to society as a whole, to be respected. Many of you know me as Youth Pastor Chris. Right? My wife can't stand youth Pastor Chris when he comes home because he's a little loud and obnoxious, but uh, she's, she's kind of husband Chris back. But many of you know me as youth Pastor Chris, and so you've seen me only in shorts and, and T-shirts and flip-flops, right? And that's my normal attire. And yet the reality is, if I were to stand up here this morning in shorts, T-shirts, and flip-flops and deliver the message that God has laid on my heart this morning, many of you would not listen because of the appearance, because of the attire. You, you wouldn't take me seriously. Even if you know my background, even if you know that I have a master's degree, that I've owned a business, I've worked in corporate America, and I've, I've been in ministry for 16 years, that wouldn't matter because you'd see a guy up here in shorts and a t-shirt. And so this morning I wore khakis, I tucked in my shirt. For youth pastor, this is big, right? <laughs> Do you know how many people commented on it this morning? I'm not trying to make you feel bad if you did. But do you realize how many people came in this morning and went, wow, you're looking good. You're looking sharp. All of a sudden, there's a, this underlying subconscious level of respect that went up because I tucked my shirt in. Really? And yet, if we're honest, as we look at ourselves, as we look at the people around us, appearances matter. And so this morning, I'm going to make us a little uncomfortable because I'm going to challenge us that many of the things that we chase after are pointless. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you this morning. Lord, we lay ourselves down 
willingly to, to offer our lives to you. Father, we pray that your spirit and your word would pierce us this morning, would confront us, would challenge us. Father, that we would leave here today and, and we would allow the work to continue. Father, expose in us areas of our lives where we make Jesus smaller than he should be. Father, in this area of discontentment, Father, would you, would you expose to each one of us maybe one, maybe two areas where we struggle with trying to find our identity and our image and our worship in something of this world rather than in you. We pray this in the name of Jesus. And everybody said, amen. amen. The reality is, is we were made to worship. God has created us with hearts that, that yearn towards him. This, these next two scriptures are not on the screen. I came up with them after I gave everything to Heather. But Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has said eternity in our hearts. Psalm 84, 1 and 2 says, How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My, my soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. We were made to worship. Whether you have the words for it or not, whether you know this or not, we all have this deep longing for God, and yet many times we fill that longing with things of this world. Our worship becomes misdirected into things that are temporal instead of eternal. Lisa Turkhurst wrote a book called Made to Crave, Satisfying Your Deepest Desire with God, Not Food. And in it she writes that, that God made us to crave. Now before you think this is some cruel joke by God, let me assure you that the object of our craving was never supposed to be food or other things people find themselves consumed by, such as sex or money or chasing after significance. And yet, if we're honest... So often, those are the things that we pursue. Those are the things that, that we crave. More than pursuing God, we pursue self. Francois Fenelon was a, a 17th century French Roman Catholic archbishop. He was an author and a poet, and he was, he, he was kind of in and out of good relationships with the Catholic Church. He, he, he was intrigued by kind of the mystical side of our faith, and he, he really um, studied and, and looked into this idea of the inner voice. And He says that the inner voice suggests you live for yourself, the voice of self-love is even more powerful than the voice of the serpent. You see, if our, our Jesus is small, last week I introduced you to our friend Bobblehead Jesus, all right? I love the stage, it's a little uneven, so every time I step, he bobbles and nods, right? If our Jesus is small, if, if, if Jesus isn't enough, and life is all about self, then we're going to seek to fill our lives with what we think will make us complete. And this is the root of discontentment because nothing can satisfy more than Jesus. This teeter-totter back here, right? It might be a, you might think it was a scale and a balance, and it kind of is, but it's more of a teeter-totter. Nate Westerfield built this for me. I came up with this crazy idea last week, and he built it for me, and Heather helped with some stuff as well. And, uh, but this teeter-totter, how many of you remember teeter-totters from when you were kids, Right? Yeah, if you're, if you're over like 30, your playground probably had it. If you're under 30, you were never blessed with the, the joy of a teeter-totter, where, where you can be the bully, right, and get somebody in the other end, and then you can just sit down all the way and keep them up in the air. Last time I wrote a teeter-totter, I did this to my wife, Karen. It's a great picture. I, I sat down, and she was on the other end, and I got my phone out, and she's like, seriously, you're going to leave me hanging up here? And I'm like, yeah, you know? I don't know what you guys call it. Maybe, maybe you don't call it teeter-totter, right? How many of you call it a seesaw? Anybody? It's good to know Illinois represents the teeter-totter. So, um, 
Seesaw, I didn't realize this. You know, it's amazing what you research when you're writing a sermon. Um, the origin of the word seesaw. It's an Anglicanized version of a French word. I don't speak French, but it sounds like seesaw. Um, but the, the Anglicanized version of it means this or that. Seesaw. This or that. You get it? Sometimes it's this, sometimes it's that. I think that's a good illustration for our lives and our faith. Because so often, we know that we're to pursue Jesus, and yet so often we pursue another, something else. We pursue this, and, and then we pursue that. The word discontentment, the root definition means a restless desire or craving for something that one does not have. I, I like that definition. It's a, a craving for something one does not have. I, I threw out on social media this week, why do, we, why do you think we struggle with contentment? And then there were several answers, and it confirmed a lot of things I was thinking, and then there was some new stuff as well, but I, I, there were kind of four main areas or four main ideas that, that came up with why we struggle with, with uh, discontentment. One was comparison game. So often we look at what other people have and, and, and not at ourselves, and we, we look at them and we're like, oh man, if only, only I was like them, if, if only I had that, if only that, you know? We spend our lives with binoculars looking out our windows at our neighbors instead of looking at, in a mirror at our inner souls. We, we, we feed this with social media, and I'm guilty. This whole sermon, by the way, is preached to me just as much as it's preached to you. Okay, like I said, I've had a week to wrestle with this. How much does social media affect how we compare our lives to other people? How many of you have been jealous of somebody who had a better house, a better car, a celebrated their vacation, rather than going, praise God, you got to go on vacation Praise God that you have a roof over your head. Praise God that you have a car that, that can get you from point A to point B. I struggle with this with Bill and Vicky in Israel. I'm just being honest. I want to go back. And I'm sitting here going, yeah, praise God you got to go. I'm like, man, why wasn't it me? <laughs> right? But at some point, I know, I'm, I'm hoping I'm going to go back. But even if I don't, it's okay. Because I'm learning to celebrate with other people when God is doing incredible things in their lives. But we have this comparison that we do. We also have this temporary perspective we, we, we lose sight of the fact that life is eternal, and that everything we view is supposed to have an eternal perspective. Um, I, I, we love basketball in our house, NBA specifically, and uh, one of our favorite players is Stephen Curry. Stephen Curry is a follower of Jesus. I don't know if you know that, but uh, won MVP last year. Is that right, Ethan? Okay, um, i got to go to my son for that. Um, here's an article I found online that Stephen Curry uh, was interviewed, and he, he says this. He says, the Holy Spirit is moving through our locker room in a way I've never experienced before. It's allowing us to reach a lot of people, and personally, I'm just trying to use this stage to share how God has been a blessing to my life and how he can be the same in everyone else's. God's given me talents to play basketball for a living, but I still have to work hard to improve every day. I know that in the grand scheme of things, this is just a game and that can be taken away from me at any moment. But I love that basketball gives me the opportunities to do good things for people and to point them towards the man who died for our sins on the cross. I know I have a place in heaven waiting for me because of him, and that's something no earthly prize or trophy could ever top. There's more to me than just this jersey I wear, and that's Christ living inside of me. And it's amazing when you hear from somebody who's reached the pinnacle of their career on such a public stage as Stephen Curry, and he goes, you know what? It's just a game. In the scope of eternity, MVP, championships, it's all pointless. So we've got to maintain an eternal perspective. I think also we have this sense of entitlement. We feed ourselves with this idea of, I deserve this, I earned this. You work hard, you get the degree, you sacrifice for the company, and then somebody else gets the promotion, somebody else gets the raise. And you're going, what? Come on. 
And it's that sense of entitlement and familiarity as well. I didn't, I, I struggle with a word for this one, but familiarity, I think, is probably the best word for it. Uh, we, we become too familiar with what we have. Newer is always better, right? And so it feeds to discontent, whether it's, it's technology, you know, got to have the latest iPhone, you know, version 6, 6 plus, 6S, 6 whatever that's coming out, right? We got to line up for that. Maybe it's a new product that's basically the same as last year's product, but you slapped a new, a new sticker on it and it's all brand new packaging, but it's the same thing. Maybe it's a new career. Maybe it's different experiences. But sometimes it's people. Sometimes we become too familiar with people in our lives. And we're in this throwaway culture. And when somebody doesn't meet our need anymore, rather than doing the hard work of living out that relationship and struggle, we just cast them aside. We become discontent with people in our lives. In contrast to discontentment is contentment. A definition of that is satisfaction with what one is or has. Not wanting more or anything else. Our core text from today comes from uh, Philippians, the Apostle Paul. He writes in Philippians 4, uh, verses 11 through 13. He says, I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. It's interesting that so many athletes, professional and and down to high school, middle school, use that verse, 413, to say, God will make me victorious in sports. The reality is, is that verse is saying, God will make you victorious in defeat. That when you lose, if you truly understand who Jesus is, it won't matter. If you win, great, but give the praise to God. This verse is not used, not teaching what many of us think it is. And notice also that contentment is a learned trait. I'm still learning contentment. Paul writes, I have learned. My words would be, I am still learning how to be content. It's this ongoing process in our lives. Paul also writes to his young protege, Timothy, and he says these words in 1 Timothy 6. Six through eight, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Are we content with that? Are, are, are we content with the basics of life? The basic essentials? Think Maslow's hierarchy of needs. What if we never got past the bottom layer? Would we be okay with that? Because we have Jesus. I like the words of Agur in Proverbs 30, verse 7 through 9. It says, Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies far from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, Who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. You see, contentment is learning to listen to the voice of God rather than the voice of self. Contentment is learning to listen to the voice of God instead of the voice of self. In preparation for this morning, I read a book called Death by Suburb. It's been on my shelf for years. I just never read it before. Uh, the the, the uh, subtitle is How to Keep the Suburbs from Killing Your Soul. Um, it was written by a guy named David Getz, who's a, a pastor in Wheaton, Illinois. If you've ever been to Wheaton, it's, it's a very uh, well-to-do community. 
And he writes in this book about this uh, 20th century Jewish-American cultural anthropologist. I don't know if he put that on his business card or not, but um, Ernest Becker was this 20th century uh, Jewish-American cultural anthropologist. And he, he became popular, he became known for his theory on terror management. Fascinating, right? I told you, you never know what you're going to study when you're preparing a sermon, right? So all of a sudden, I'm finding myself researching terror management theory for this, this morning. And, and, but it's interesting because his theory is that most human action is taken to ignore or avoid the inevitability of death. Let that sink in for a minute. Most of what we do, Becker says, comes because we don't want to believe that one day we're going to die. And so, so he writes about these things that he calls immortality symbols. And he says, money gives power now, and through accumulated property, land, and interest, power in the future. The symbols of immortal power that money buys exist on the level of the visible and so crowd out their invisible competitor. The house, the car, the bank balance are man's immortality symbols. You see, immortality symbols become the source of our greatest discontentment. We think that they're going to satisfy this, this deep longing we have, but they always fall woefully short. Rather than looking to Jesus and to provide meaning and satisfaction for our lives, we look to the things of this world. And so I chose five of his immortality symbols that David Getz identifies in this book. And, and they're ones that, that one or two may resonate with you, a couple others may not. But this is where the work comes in. Go home this week and, and look at these five immortality symbols. And look at your maybe others that didn't make the list. And, and evaluate how content are you? How often do you pursue these immortality symbols? So the first one, if you're taking notes, is identity, or we could call it status or position. I am what I do and what I accomplish. Want to make a room full of people uncomfortable? Don't allow them to talk about what they do for a living or talk about their families. Just make it nil. Just have, it, have an event, and the first rule is you cannot talk about your career, and you cannot talk about your family, talk about anything else. People are like, what do, what do I do? You know, I thought it was good. We, we, Karen and I got invited to some, some new neighbor's house last night, and, and we were there for dessert, and I thought it was good. I lasted about 15 minutes before I asked the host what he does for a living, right? But it was killing me, like, the whole time. I'm like, what does this guy do? Like, I don't even know. And in, in my head, like, my, his whole identity was wrapped up in what he did, and that was pointless, and I knew that. But I still, at some point, had to ask. One of the guys in my Wednesday morning group was talking about uh, at Caterpillar and um, people that are, are changing jobs and taking over offices. And he, he, he was in this office one day, and this guy was cleaning out all of these file cabinets from the previous guy that worked in that office. And, 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 he, and, and the guy in my Wednesday morning group stood back, and he's like, man, that guy's just throwing away the entire guy's life work. And it's true. But we don't know if that guy found his identity in that work or not. He may have been able to walk out on his final day and go, hey, thanks for Caterpillar, but that's never been my identity. We don't know. It could have been his whole identity. And maybe that guy walked out of Caterpillar and going, what do I do now? Who am I? What is my identity? What is my significance in this world? I don't have a job anymore. How often do we find our identity in the success of our children? David Getz writes that parenting is today's most competitive adult sport. I thought that was good. Your kid? Oh, my kid. My kid? Oh, your kid. You know? My kid's on the honor roll. My kid beat up your honor roll student, right? It's the bumper stickers we have. What about the all-star athlete who ends their high school career in sports and no college offers are on the table? 
Or the college athlete who's been playing since second, third grade, and there's nothing more after they graduate college. What happens when the lights go out on Friday night? What happens when the buzzer blows in the final game of your season? The college stu- or the student whose identity is wrapped up in their GPA or in their position in class or getting into the right college. What happens when you don't achieve the expectations that you've, ex- you've set for yourself? Parents, what happens when your child doesn't achieve the expectations that you set for them? And if we're honest, many of them are unrealistic expectations. Our identity, what we do, what we accomplish, all too often become an immortality symbol. It's not the only one. Stuff, our possessions, our money. You know, we look at our neighbors and we go, man, I want my neighbor's life. So much of our discontentment comes from looking around and seeing what other people have. And as we talked about earlier, social media only adds fuel to that fire. Abraham Heschel, who was a Jewish rabbi, he pointed out one time that that do not covet is the only commandment stated twice in the same kind of sentence paragraph. He goes, it's as if God needed to reiterate its extraordinary importance. As followers of Jesus in, in this community and in this country, we all have to answer the question, how much is enough? At what point have we said, I've got enough stuff? It's interesting that poverty and prosperity both can lead to discontentment. John D. Rockefeller, one of the richest men in the world, was famously asked one time by a reporter, how much money is enough? And the response, just a little more. He didn't need more money. But that discontentment from finding his value, his worth, and money. We went to Guatemala with students a few years back, and I'll tell you, want to have an eye-opening experience, go to another developing country, and then come home to your home. We spent a week replacing concrete floors in homes like this, building stoves so they could burn wood in a stove instead of in an open fire in their home, and all to save the lives of infants and elderly. And we spent a week working in these homes. And, and honestly, I mean, I'd been to developing countries before, and, and so I, I was prepared for what I was about to experience. And, and I, I did okay while I was there, honestly. It, I mean, it affected me, but, but not as deeply as I would have expected it to. It affected me when I came home. And I pulled up in front of my, my garage, my two-car garage, and I hit the button um, for the garage door opener. And as the garage opened, I sat there in my driveway and wept. Because my garage is a better home than many of these people live in. My garage with a concrete floor and walls and a strong roof. These people that I worked with for a week in Guatemala would have killed for my garage. And I look at it and I go, it's just a place to store my stuff. How much is enough? One local pastor, D.B. Baker, our children's pastor, by the way. I threw this out to our staff and a few other groups and said, hey, help me, help me process through this, this thing of discontentment. He said, it's interesting that the word discontentment contains the word content. And he wrote this, and he said, the content of our lives determines the contentment of our lives. How often is that true? The old adage, the person who dies with the most stuff wins. Actually, the person who dies with the most stuff still dies. Doesn't really matter. Not only identity and stuff, but comfort. We think that our life should be easier than it is. It's easy to look at identity and, and, and possessions, our stuff, and think, yeah, I can become discontent there. But how often do we think about our comfort, or rather our discomfort, as a source of our discontentment? 
See, a mark of maturity is accepting the fact that life isn't always easy. Life is sometimes about how to manage the suffering. Joni Erickson Tata, who's a paraplegic, wrote one time, I think life is supposed to be hard. And if there's anybody who had the right to be mad at God and mad at the world, it's her. And she found this way to balance contentment, even with all of the things she went through. See, one of the great injustices of this world is that suffering isn't handed out evenly. Everybody suffers in some way, but not everyone suffers equally, right? Is God still good when life isn't easy? Is God still good when your child is born with a developmental delay? Is God still good when you receive the cancer diagnosis? Is God still good when you lose your job? When your home is destroyed by a tornado? Is God still good when your child dies in your arms? Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's a pastor during Nazi Germany, wrote a letter to his sister, and he talked about suffering. He says, It's good to learn early enough that suffering and God are not a contradiction, but rather a unity. For the idea that God himself is suffering is one that has always been one of the most convincing teachings of Christianity. I think God is nearer to suffering than to happiness, and to find God in this way gives peace and rest and a strong and courageous heart. If you don't know Dietrich's story, he was hanged for speaking out against Nazi. Are we willing in our discomfort to be content that Jesus is enough? Another immortality symbol, and this is one I struggle with, is impact. I, I feel like I need to make a difference with my life. I need to, to leave a legacy. David Getz in his book, Death by Suburb, writes, I fear ultimately a life that doesn't really matter much, a life that leaves no mark on the world. Perhaps that ultimately is why immortality symbols hold so much power over me. He writes about a family that he knew in the Chicago suburbs who uh, felt called by God to work with refugees who, who had, would come to the U.S. And they would go to O'Hare or Midway and they would, they would pick them up and they would take them and they'd help them get jobs and settle in temporary housing and, and get the kids in school. And, and David asked the, the, the couple one time, he said, so how's it going? Thinking this is going to be incredible, you're doing incredible work of God and, and God is just doing amazing things in, and th in you and through you, right? He's changing all these refugee families. And the family went, eh, sometimes it works. Sometimes it doesn't. We've got one family that, you know, they've been able to buy a house now, and one of the kids is off to college, and by all American standards, they're a success. Because they've got another refugee who just got convicted and is going to jail for a felony. And he says, how, what do you, how do you deal with that? And he says, you know what? God just called me to be faithful. He didn't call me to, to worry about the results. See, God called me to do what I can and, and leave it up to him. What happens when all of our efforts fall flat? What happens when, when the person we're coming alongside and trying to help, trying to change, doesn't change? What happens when, when you can't achieve what you want to achieve in this world? Is it enough that you tried? Is it enough that Jesus was your Lord and Savior? What if nobody ever knows your name? What if there is no mark left in this world because you were here? What if there is no legacy other than the fact that this man, this woman, loved Jesus? Is that enough? He writes as well about friendships. And he says friendships become an immortality symbol and, and then kind of this question of what will this friendship do for me? See, if we're honest, we're, we like it when our friends are, are similar to us. 
when they look like us, they have the same economic status, and you know, they might be able to, they might need something every now and again, but not a whole lot, and, and you know, then they're going to be available for me when I need something. And that's not friendship, that's a business transaction. F. Scott Fitzgerald once wrote about Ernest Hemingway that he would always give a helping hand to a man on a ledge a little higher up. A friend of mine works in a hospital. He uh, was called to the room to be at the, the death of a man. Didn't know the guy, didn't know anything about his story. and Came in and found out that this guy was all alone, had no family. He was a 70, 80-year-old, developmentally delayed adult. Parents had died a long time ago. But he had, he had owned a farm. He took over his parents' farm. And it wasn't a big farm. It was a small farm. And, and he worked this farm. And, and so he's hearing all these things. And so he has no clue what to expect when he walks in. And he walks in. And this guy who has no family is surrounded by people. And he begins to ask, like, who are you people? Turns out they were his neighbors. And, and so he began to probe and ask questions, you know. What did this guy do for you? Nothing. In fact, we, we did for him. We helped him learn how to farm. We watched over him. We, we made sure that he was taking care of himself on the property. And they're like, wow. You know, my friend was like, wow. What an incredible gift you gave him. And they said, no. He was our gift to us. He helped us remind us what's really important in life. Are you friends with people who are nothing like you? Are you friends with people who can do nothing for you? Are you friends with people who have no immortality symbols, no status, no money, no influence, no success? Would you be willing to be friends with those people? Would Jesus be enough? See, immortality symbols have power. Ernest Becker, the Jewish cultural anthropologist, is right. We don't want to admit that life is short, that we're not in control. James writes, now listen, you who say today or tomorrow, we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if it is the Lord's will, we will live and do this or that. David Getz is correct. We can't imagine living a life that doesn't leave a legacy on this world. He poignantly writes, convictingly writes, that the most boring people at a party are those with no immortality symbols. Nobody invites them to give the address at the college graduation. But if we're honest, all of these things, and and maybe things that you're thinking of that I haven't identified, all of these immortality symbols, they're all an illusion. They're all a distraction from the most important things in this world. See, that's why mortality symbols are so important in contrast to immortality symbols. Moments in time when we remember that that life is short, when we remember that that there are no promises for the future, when you lose your job, when, when you don't make the team, when you lose everything you own, when a loved one dies, those moments remind you that life is short and that minute for a brief moment, we realize and we recognize and we're, we allow God to speak to us a little bit that the things we chase after are worthless. You know, it's our identity. Our stuff. Our comfort. 
They're all things that we begin to pursue. And they begin to, to weigh down our teeter-totter, our legacy, our impact, our friends. You, you could probably add a couple more blocks to that, couldn't you? We worship all of these immortality symbols. And it's easy to do. Because they seem to hold promise for us, hold, hold promise for the future. And yet, the reality is when we pursue them, we discover that we're still physically, spiritually, emotionally, and relationally bankrupt. We find ourselves in, in this condition because we think those things are our greatest need. Joe Thorne, who's a pastor up in Chicagoland, wrote a book called No to Self. And in it, he said this, The problem is not that you want evil things. The things you want are generally good or at least harmless in themselves. But more than wanting, you become frustrated by not having. You become jealous, envious, and discontented with your life. It is true, you need what you lack. But what you lack is satisfaction in Jesus. You see, Jesus has to be the only immortality symbol we should embrace. But it all depends on how big our Jesus is. If our Jesus is bobblehead Jesus, doesn't seem quite enough. And yet moments like this, moments today, or moments like a funeral, or the loss of a job, loss of a house, all of a sudden start to, to move the teeter-totter, and we realize, like, wow, Jesus is a little heavier in my life, needs to be a little heavier in my life. And then that moment passes, and all of a sudden the teeter-totter goes back down. And we begin to pursue the things of this world. And then something else happens, and, and this and that, the teeter-totter, also we're back to Jesus. And then that moment passes, and the stuff of this world weighs us down. Is that not a, a picture of our lives? If our Jesus is small, if our Jesus is a bobblehead, What if our Jesus is a little bit bigger? What if this was the view of Jesus that we had at all times? What if even as we pursued these things, we saw them as only as symbols? We saw them only as temporal things of this world. And Jesus was more than enough. The Apostle Paul, he had some pretty big immortality symbols in his life. He had a lot of things going for him, a lot of, a lot of things that he could have leaned on that weighed down his teeter-totter. He writes this in Philippians 3. He says, If others think they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, and regards the law of Pharisee, as for zeal persecuting the church, as for righteousness based on the law, faultless. I mean, this was a guy that you would look at in our world today, and man, he's got it together. He's at the pinnacle of his career, his family, his money, he's set. There's nothing this guy has to worry about. This guy has everything. And then he says this, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ 
and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is faith through faith in Christ. Is Jesus more than enough? You see, in contrast to, to all of these things that we're, we so often pursue, we need to pursue Jesus, and his path is a little bit different. More challenging, actually. These things are easy to chase after. Jesus is not so easy in this world. Francois Fenelon, the 17th century bishop, wrote this, 17th century. To just read the Bible, attend church, and avoid the big sins, is this passionate, wholehearted love for God? I think he would tell us today that that's not nearly enough. And so what is the way of Jesus? First of all, it's simplicity. Less is more. Does you, do you own your stuff or does your stuff own you? Do you know that the, the self-storage uh, unit business is a $22 billion industry in the United States? $22 billion goes to store extra stuff that we don't have room in our homes for. Stuff that we feel like we got to hold on to for whatever reason, sentimental reasons or practical reasons, but we, we look at our home and we're like, wow, I don't have room in my home anymore. i got to go find a garage somewhere else to store my stuff. $22 billion. Jesus says in Matthew, do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moths and, and vermin, I thought that was interesting, my old NIB Bible said rust, where moths and vermin destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moths and vermin do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart, heart will be also. Julie Gray writes in a Huffington Post article, buy only what you need, recycle what you don't, and take better care of what you have. Can that be said of us today? Are we living simpler lives than we need to live? Are we pursuing the way of Jesus? Not only simplicity, but silence and solitude. Cease the activity, the, the frenetic pace of life that we live at. We run nonstop, and again, this sermon is preaching to me as much as it's preaching to you. How often do we take time and we just stop? And we rest, and we honor the Sabbath, and we, we trust God with the results of our, our lives and our work instead of feeling like it's dependent on us. C.S. Lewis writes, It's not easy to sit and trust that in solitude God will speak to you, and not as a magical voice, but that he will let you know something gradually over the years. I don't like over the years. I want to know now. I want to hear from God now. I want God to work on my schedule and my timetable rather than me bending my schedule to God. And yet that's not the way it works. Are you pursuing the way of Jesus? Lastly is through service. Through focusing on, on others and not self. For honest, so much of our life is focused on self. Fenelon was right in the 17th century about self-love. How much of our time do we spend investing in others without any expectation of applause or results? David Goetz writes, when you feel the thirst for more of Jesus, find a hopeless case or a hopeless cause. Would you be willing to do that? Would I be willing to do that? To serve other people with no expectation of results and be content with that. 
We all struggle with discontentment. We, we all look at things of this world and place them a little higher value in our life than Jesus. And yet God has moments like this morning where we're confronted with the reality of that. We realize that our Jesus is too small. So the hard work begins now. You have to go home. I've had a week to process on this and still am. The hard work begins now for you. You have to go home. You have to look at the things that you pursue, the things that you chase after, and say, am I elevating them above Jesus? Is Jesus more than enough for me? Let's pray. Father, we surrender. I started out in the prayer that way, saying that we lay our lives down. Father, would your spirit work in us this week? Do the hard work in us. Would we be open and receptive to you speaking to us this week, to beginning to say, there's things I want to talk to you about, Chris. Areas where I feel like you're, you're pursuing the things of this world rather than me. Father, would you give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and a heart that's soft and moldable? Father, would you help us to fully trust you with our lives? Because you are more than enough. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen.